0: G'day folks and welcome, I'm Chris Faber and I'm TJ Steadman and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants and we're getting to the pointy end of this season, not long to go now before we hit Genesis 5, right Tim?
1: That's right Chris, there's not much to go now until we reach the end of the chapter and the end of this season of the podcast and that means that the author of Genesis 4 is preparing us now for what will come next in chapter 5. We saw that beginning with the introduction of Lamech, and I mentioned that curious little quirk of Hebrew that uses the letters of Lamech's name as a hinge or a fulcrum that turns the story about a central point. Now that we've been prepared for the next part of the story, we're going to see the introduction of a new character. The question is, will this be the droid we're looking for who will turn around the sorry situation that humanity has gotten into? But before we can move along to an apparently obvious conclusion, let's look at our text. This is Genesis 4, 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Well, we knew it was going to come eventually. and Finally, here it is. This is the first time in the book of Genesis that we see the use of the proper name, Adam. You thought I was going to start talking about Seth, didn't you? We'll get there. But we're finally entering the transition from this archetypal narrative that began in Genesis one and into the Toledot of Adam that will begin in chapter five. This is a significant transition. And as I mentioned last time on the podcast, that transition was marked by the appearance of this character named Lamech. So having been alerted to this new phase in the biblical narrative, we're able to pay particular attention to the man who is now known in his own right and with his own name as the historical Adam.
0: So is this the same guy from Genesis chapter 1? Are we saying that this guy who begins the genealogy of Genesis 5, is the same guy that God brought into the Garden of Eden? That's
1: certainly how it's been presented to us in the text. And the author's gone to great pains to show the continuity of this narrative through these first four chapters and leading into chapter 5, So I think that is the understanding that we're supposed to take forward as we continue through scripture. Notice how the presentation of Adam here in this text is actually the first instance in which the word is presented without the definite article that precedes every other occasion of its use, except for the very first time, which was back in Genesis 1 verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He doesn't say, let us make the man. And we don't have the proper noun in that instance, but we are reading Hebrew, and this is the form in which it's presented, so that connection is as profound as it is deliberate.
0: So does that mean that this guy, whose name is Adam here in Genesis 4 and 5, is the ancestor of the entire human race then?
1: Well, he certainly is one ancestor of the entire human race, at least as it concerns us looking back in time and asking this kind of question, which is a very modern question to ask. This isn't the kind of thing that the first audience of the Hebrew Bible would have been concerning themselves with. Just didn't have any cultural relevance to them. But we did talk a lot about this in earlier seasons of the podcast. So if this is a question that anyone in our audience is thinking about, I would refer them back to, in particular, our second season where we talked about this in some depth. We need to keep in mind that this is literature and the author is going to use whatever literary devices he has at his disposal to communicate his point. And for our purposes... In this part of the primeval history, the critical issue is ensuring that the audience get the connection between the first man, the archetype, the one who gives us our sense of identity and purpose, and the ancestral connection to themselves and to ourselves that makes it relevant. As you know, I'm not averse to a text-critical approach to scripture, and I don't mind entertaining the idea that this text may, in fact, be a carefully constructed composition, which originally may have had separate authors and source documents. That's not really... Uh, necessarily a subscription to a particular documentary hypothesis, by the way, but I firmly believe that the process of biblical inspiration is just that. It's a process. And it didn't stop when the ink dried on paper the first time anybody wrote anything that contributed to the final form of scripture that we now possess. I believe that the inspiration of scripture incorporated all the many hands it passed through, including the composition and editorial process that brought us the completed scriptures in their present form. As such, I don't believe that it's necessary to take apart the affirmations of the text as we explore the origins of its source material. There's no need to divorce the man in the Garden of Eden from the man who became the father of Cain and Abel. There's no need to separate him from the man who became the father of Seth. There is no need to break him away from the genealogy that leads to Noah and ultimately to Jesus Christ, and there's certainly no benefit in doing so. This transition that we saw with the introduction of Lamech is designed to guide the reader or person who hears this text from the archetypal narrative in which the man represents and is represented by all of us as humans into a specific story unique to this individual man. So the story that began with the man chosen from outside of the Garden of Eden and brought in to dwell with God, which culminated in exile and the descent into human depravity, has reached a climax, is now beginning to turn on itself as mankind endeavours to come back to God. But we no longer see this story as representing our own personal situation as human beings. The story will now focus on the individual man, Adam, rather than describing the human condition in general. And that's why Adam has finally received his name in the text, so that he can stand on his own. The situation's different, however, when we turn our attention to the woman. Adam's wife is referred to as Ishto here, which just means his woman. So the big question here is what happened to Eve?
0: Yeah, what happened to Eve?
1: We know that it is, Eve, because we have the use of the word again here in the text, which tells us that Adam is still with the same woman.
0: So if her name was introduced earlier, then why is it not featured here?
1: I'm going to suggest that it's the same reason why she's not named in the pronouncement of destiny that God makes in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman is not the seed of some particular woman. It could be any woman, and that's why there's no name given in the text. It's hopeful because it remains an open-ended question as to who will bring about the seed of the woman who's going to set this all straight. And it seems like Eve believes that her next child is going to be the one. The author is going to make it quite clear that the expected deliverer did not come from the womb of Eve. While leaving her name out of the text at this point, he builds expectation and leaves the question of imminence on the table.
0: So the seed of the woman could theoretically come from any woman and that paved the way for Mary, the mother of Jesus.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we've talked a lot during the course of this season about the language of childbearing and the nature of biological descent. And here we have another clear cut and unambiguous statement of ordinary biological parentage. And Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. It doesn't get any more natural and straightforward than that. And this is important because it gives us that biological connection to the historical Adam. But it would be a mistake to assume that this is a biological connection to some kind of righteousness by bloodline. Don't forget that Cain was also a biological son of Eve. But We're going to talk about that more later on. The story is coming to a close because we've come back around to Adam and Eve, and this will be the last time that Cain and Abel are mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. The last reminder in this chapter of the murderous and idolatrous king who shed the innocent blood of he who brought the breath of God to the people. Well, let's now look at Seth and we'll come back to that. Eve gives her own explanation for the naming of this child right away this tells you that we found a new protagonist.
0: Yeah we haven't seen somebody get an explanation of the name since we were introduced to Cain at the beginning of the chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah the intuitive thing to do here would be to simply hear what Eve has to say about the naming of her son but the most striking element of the text here isn't Seth it's the author's choice of words he tells us that she called his name Seth. Listen to it in Hebrew. Shet. You should be hearing the connection with Shem, the name, son of Noah and predecessor of the Semites, from whom the nation of Israel would emerge and God himself would become known to this people as the name. Remember what I've said before about the context of this story. It hasn't emerged from a vacuum. The story is being told against the backdrop of Israelite cultural context, which already recalls the history of the people of God from as far back as Abraham and has already been well acquainted with the flood tradition. They know who Shem is. They're familiar with the Exodus and the God who called himself the name. So the particular construction of this phrase translated in English as called his name is obscure to us, but for anyone familiar with Hebrew, the association is unmissable Here's the first allusion in the text to any kind of sure-footed connection to the line of Adam and the condescension of God to man. This presents for the Hebrew listener that means by which he might find a connection back to Adam and some kind of hope that the seed of the woman would have relevance to Israel as a nation. But we have to remember that the promised seed means nothing without the purpose of that seed. The beauty of Genesis 1-4 to is that it provides that means by which we're able to explain the origins and the early development of human depravity, along with the hope that it might one day be undone. And both of those elements need to be present and historically connected to the audience in order to mean anything at all. There's a very good reason why the Hebrew Bible outside of these four chapters of Genesis has nothing to say about the origin of sin and evil in the world. Because until the exilic period, there was no clear cut presentation of that message in a single document. Likewise, there was no clear expectation of a messianic figure who would be able to overturn the effects of sin and undo death itself. I'm not saying that you can't find pieces of that puzzle throughout the Hebrew Bible, because you definitely can. But nothing spells it out as clearly as Genesis 3.15. What this text does is not only provides an explanation for the state of the human heart, but also makes clear that the remedy for that situation would come through a dramatic reversal. And that reversal begins to be evident in the words of Eve, who at the birth of Cain said, I have acquired a man, the Lord. But this time, she acknowledges that it's not her story, and it's not her child, and it's not her legacy. This is the seed that God has planted. Incidentally, you might notice that the word for planting in the Bible is a different word to what we see in this instance, and that's because we're not talking about the planting of a plant that will grow in the soil. just thought I'd better clear that up.
0: Was that a foreshadowing of the Christ?
1: In retrospect, we can say that it was. But all we can see here is the hope of this text the hope of the woman, the establishment of that hope in contrast to the fleeting breath that was her son Abel. And it's the establishment of Seth, the surety of his continuance that provides the ultimate contrast not only to Abel but to Cain himself. We hinted at this several times over the course of this season and it's about time we make it clear. When Eve named her son Cain she was using a play on words around the idea of acquisition or getting a son but that name has deeper connections to the history of the Israelite people and it's haunted them since the day they set foot in the promised land. This idea of acquisition isn't simply some notion of receiving a handout. It's a transactional kind of acquisition. It's a trade. It's a deal that you do with a merchant who has something to offer at a price. And Cain might be among the first in the biblical narrative sequence to make a deal with the devil to acquire what he needed, following the example of his mother. But Israel had a long and sordid history with these kinds of transactions in the records of the patriarchs, the judges and the kings of the land long before this story was written. The story of Cain is just one way to tell the story of Israel.
0: As you know, every
1: so often I like to bring you a little snippet of academic material just to provide a little grounding in the interpretation that I present. I don't make it too heavy on this show, but it's there if you want to dig deeper. So I've got something here to contribute to the discussion around Cain's name. This is actually from a paper that's not about Cain's name. But uh, it's a quote from the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society uh, back in 2016, uh, issue 59 slash 4, called Lending and Interest in the Old Testament, examining three interpretations to explain the Deuteronomy 23 verses 19 to 20 distinction in light of the historical usury debate. These things always have great titles. Uh, Written by Klaus Isler. So I've got a little paragraph here to read from this paper. Kena'ani, which means Canaanite, is derived from the geographical name Canaan or Kena'an. Canaanite refers mostly to an inhabitant or inhabitants of the land of Canaan. However, because the Canaanites were well known for their commercial interests, Canaanite came to have this secondary meaning. In eight clear contexts, Kena'anu is translated as merchant or trader. And we have the examples listed in Job forty one verse six, Proverbs thirty-one, verse twenty-four, Isaiah twenty-three verse eight, Ezekiel sixteen twenty-nine and seventeen four, Hosea twelve, verse seven, Zephaniah one verse eleven, and Zechariah fourteen twenty-one. A parallel appearance of Kenani as traitor occurs with Soher in Job 41, six and Isaiah 23, eight, and with Roquel in Ezekiel 17.4. Furthermore, as Finley proposes, two other passages offer additional cases. By following the more difficult Septuagint reading over the Masoretic text regarding an enigmatic Hebrew phrase in Zechariah 11.7 and verse 11, the terms can signify sheep traders from the uh, As the ESV renders it, or sheep merchants from the NRSV, rather than the oppressed of the flock, as the NIV has it, or the afflicted of the flock in the NASV. This would bring the total to 10 occurrences of Kanaani as trader. That's the end of the quote. So you should be able to see the connection there between the Canaanites and the idea of trading and merchandise. And I mentioned a moment ago the idea of Cain having made a deal with the devil.
0: So you're saying that the name of Cain has the same connotations behind it that we find in the term Canaanite?
1: Yeah, basically. In that quote that I read just now from Klaus Isler, he mentions a particular Hebrew term that gets used in parallel with this idea of merchant trading. That was Roquel, usually translated as trade or merchandise or traffic. And that's the word that turns up in a very famous passage of scripture. I'll just read you this one and you'll know where it's from. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Of course, that was Ezekiel chapter twenty eight and the famous lamentation over the king of Tyre, which is well known to be a prophetic description of the fall of Satan. So putting all these pieces together, we have this very clear connection between the name of Cain, the idea of acquisition, the development of that idea into merchant trading and the association of the enemies of God, both human and divine with this idea of taking advantage of God's people by means of unfair transactions exactly what the gods of the nations do to keep people in bondage to them. And we talked before about how busy people can be in trying to keep the gods happy, so much so that they neglect the worship of their creator.
0: Yeah, I can see how that makes sense.
1: That connection is solidified when we consider passages like Job 41, verse 6, where the word that we have translated as traders from the Hebrew, is actually rendered as Phoenicians in the Septuagint. And of course, going back to Ezekiel, the Phoenicians were ruled by the king of Tyre.
0: That's uh, all really interesting, Tim, but I'm still not sure how this connects to the, the passage that we're looking at today.
1: That was a fair comment. It's been a bit of a rabbit trail, but what we're getting at here is that Eve has finally acknowledged that the way forward in the redemptive plan for mankind wasn't going to be some kind of deal where she acquires the promised seed at the cost of her freedom under Cain's tyranny. All that stuff I was just talking about is basically adding layers to the meaning of Cain's name to show the connotations associated with it. Instead, Eve's forced to acknowledge that this new seed has come from the Lord and not from herself. So he belongs to the Lord and is not hers to acquire. And that's a relief because it means that unlike a merchant who makes a bargain only to serve himself and to take advantage of his customers, God is just and he will not allow injustice to continue. This time, righteousness will prevail.
0: We hope. So what about this part in the text that talks about another offspring being appointed? Is Eve just going to keep having kids until one of them finally gets it right?
1: That's a good question, but before we get to that, I want to talk about that word offspring. You read that in the translation, it just conscious ideas of having children. But unfortunately, that just just doesn't do justice to the text. And we talked about this last season because the use of the word seed is very intentional, incredibly important, and needs to be present in the text for you to get what's going on here. So the kids aren't all right. You've got to keep them separated from what the text is actually trying to tell us.
0: Offspring jokes. Nice.
1: That's all I want. You could say I'm the original prankster,
0: but seriously, we
1: really need to focus on correct terminology here. You lose the sense of this one word, you might as well throw the gospel in the bin. Because if Adam isn't reproduced exactly, functionally, in every subsequent human being that comes forth from the woman, then there's no hope for any of us. And the only way that you get multiplication according to the same kind is by the seed. I'm not going to go back over all the theological implications of. That which we unpacked in the last season, as I mentioned, but it's critical that we don't butcher the text and start talking about having children and talking about having our own legacy and propping up some kind of family dynasty or national pride or something like that. The seed, Zerah, is critical. It's everything because the seed of Abraham comes from God through Sarah. You have to hear it. It's right there in the text. The seed of the woman is central to the entire biblical narrative from beginning to end. And what is the seed? It's the function of representing God faithfully by bearing his image and likeness. And as much as I say that this isn't about bloodlines and genealogies and all the rest of it, as far as blood types and DNA and all that sort of stuff is concerned, you still can't ignore the very real connection that God's people must have with the first man that God created. Now, onto this idea of being set or appointed by God. We've already talked about this establishment of the seed, but it's time now to see this as the planting of the seed, where Abel had been a mere breath here today and gone tomorrow. Seth has permanence. He's established by God. That comes as a relief after hearing about the threat of vengeance by Lamech. And that means that even in spite of the proliferation of evil in the world, God is merciful. Now we know because the text makes it quite plain that there was an ordinary relationship going on between Adam and his wife that resulted in the birth of Seth. But in her words, it was God who planted the seed. And this is already setting us up for the trend that will follow. I mentioned Sarah, the wife of Abraham. In her case there is no mention of relations between her and her husband. It's implied, but as far as what the story is actually telling us, it was God who gave her a son. I mentioned Sarah, the wife of Abraham. In her case, there is no mention of relations between her and her husband. It's implied, but as far as what the story is actually telling us, it was God who gave her a son. Abraham doesn't have a toledot. He isn't credited with causing her to give birth. And yet we have the seed of Abraham. Later in the period of the Judges, we're going to see Samson, who's once again born without a natural account of his human conception, and some ambiguity about whether the angel of the Lord was involved with that. And when Jesus comes on the scene, we have effectively transitioned to a full reversal of what the sons of God initiated in Genesis 6.
0: That is fascinating. You do really need to see the big picture to be able to, to connect all those dots, though.
1: Yeah, an interesting observation in this text is that when the woman talks about the naming of her son, Seth, she talks about him as a replacement for Abel, not as a replacement for her exiled son, Cain. There are a couple of things we can draw from this observation. Firstly, it would seem that Eve does not consider that her firstborn is dead. Secondly, it shows that she's recognized the priority of the younger son and by extension that this priority is the prerogative of God. We may consider this analogous to the relationship of the divine sons of God in contrast to God's human image bearers. Although the serpent had effectively brought death to humankind, God made a way to restore that seed. God foretold that the seed of the woman would come. God planted that seed with the establishment of Seth. God brought forth the seed of Abraham, and yet the first to be created were the sons of God. And the serpent was there in the garden, his seed, as we've discussed already, is to be identified with those who do as he does. But he also brought forth a different seed of his own, as we'll discover in Genesis six and which we have already laid the foundation for as we've explored Genesis four, and that seed would continue to perpetuate after the flood, which is the context in which God introduces his seed once more through Abraham. So we see that the cultural norm of the inheritance of the firstborn is overturned at every stage of the biblical narrative, and that comes through not only in human culture, but in the broader scope of God's creation in both the seen and the unseen world. So the woman acknowledges that the reason for Abel's death was that Cain killed him. As I mentioned a moment ago, she talks like Cain is still alive. That's yet another reason to disregard the crazy theories we were talking about last week with regard to Lament. But regardless of whether Cain is dead or alive, he has ceased to be relevant and will disappear from the pages of Scripture until the second temple period, when people will begin to turn their attention to the question of the origins of sin and evil. It's actually the very fact of the late occurrence of this kind of thinking that reinforces the view that Genesis four is in itself a very late text. Having said that, in my view, it's not going to be later than the exilic period. And there's no reason to suggest that the text didn't have an early form that existed prior to the one we now have. But if we did have an early form of the text, it probably served a different purpose. You know what, Chris, I called this episode The New Seed, but I probably could have called it A New Hope.
0: Yeah, I guess. Padme dies, Vader gets away, Yoda's exiled. But Luke Skywalker is born and the good guys have a chance to come back from the jaws of defeat.
1: Yeah, let's just see how long the good guys last before they're not the good guys anymore.
0: Well, that sounds ominous.
1: Next week on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast.
0: Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Always leaving us with his tantalising endings.
1: I've got to leave them wanting more, Chris. You know, treat them mean, keep them keen.
0: No, I don't know that. All right, but you need to be uh, nice to the listeners now. It's time for some Q&A.
1: Oh, I try to be nice in the Q&A.
0: Go yourself. I want to hear
1: your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions.
0: All right, let's have a question. So, uh, Rommel asked in the Divine Council Worldview discussion group on Facebook, I have heard and read that the single source of different religions, both modern and ancient, came from, or should I say, was started by Nimrod, which culminated in the Tower of Babel. So my question is, who influenced Nimrod? Was it the devil or the sons of God?
1: Ooh, okay, well, this is a really interesting question, and I'm really glad to have an opportunity to dive into this fascinating material, because I get a bit tired of building the same questions about how did the giants come back and. And the sons of God in chains and all that kind of thing. So this is fun because I don't get a lot of questions about Nimrod and he's got to be one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible. I have actually addressed this question in my book, so I'm not going to give an exhaustive treatment of it here because that sort of defeats the purpose of writing a book after all. But we'll have a look at it. It will be worth their while. And if you want more, there's always the book out now on Amazon, paperback or Kindle, giantanswers.com. Anyway, enough shameless self-promotion. The first thing we need to talk about is exactly who was Nimrod. There have been all kinds of proposals for the identity of Nimrod and possibly the most popular, at least in the academic community would be Sargon the greater, as opposed to Sargon the toaster, I suppose. I'm going to disagree with that because the biblical account does loosely associate Nimrod with the Babel event, which I think brings us much closer to the fifth millennium BC instead of the second. And that's going to upset the people who like the Jewish traditions about Nimrod and Abraham being contemporaries. But at the end of the day that stuff is just rabbinic speculation and we still have the very real events of history to account for most notably the uruk expansion so that's the period noted in archaeology by a rapid outward expansion from the region of modern day iraq which resulted in multitudes of people living in areas where they had to learn new languages and they brought with them the pottery they had on hand at the time which meant that the kind of artifacts that had been produced on a massive scale in this localized area for an incredibly large workforce suddenly got spread across the known world at the time and were being used by people who all of a sudden had to live in close proximity to people of different ethnicities and language groups which was previously unheard of incidentally this all centers around the construction of a very large ziggurat which still stands today albeit in ruins at the site formerly known as eridu so all this should be old hat for people familiar with the material i've covered on this podcast so far and in my book and if you're not familiar with that material then i guess it'll be new hat. Might make your head feel a little bit tight. So we have the location, we have the historical monument still in place, we have the time period, all we need now is the right guy to fill those sandals. We're looking for a guy who reigned as king in that area, not long after a great flood. Let's say within a few generations of that event, we need someone with a fearsome reputation, someone who's very persuasive, innovative, and good at hunting. And that is where Enmerkar comes in. Enmerkar from the Akkadian Lord King Hunter is a name that bears a striking parallel with the description given by the Bible. He ruled in the right area. He lived about the right time, and he had all the hallmark characteristics of this biblical tyrant. By the way, the description of the name Enmerkar, as I just described it, is the basis for the biblical name, which was modified to make a mockery of him and to call him a rebel. Nimrod doesn't mean idiot. We actually have Bugs Bunny to thank for that in a classic scene where he mocks Elmer Fudd by deriding his hunting abilities. Bugs Bunny calls him Nimrod sarcastically. A lot of people didn't get the joke, but I digress. Enmukar was credited with many great deeds and amazing adventures, and it's the stories about him from ancient Mesopotamia that help us to make sense of the veiled allusions to his achievements in scripture. We have to remember that the Bible does not glorify evil. And as such, this blasphemous tyrant is not even given the honour of a real name, much less any direct credit for his achievements. And the other reason that the Bible does not directly give him credit for what he did It's because in those days you didn't distinguish between the king and the God who found embodiment in the
0: king. I don't mean to jump the gun, but it sounds like we might be getting close to an answer to this question.
1: Yeah, well, we're going to get there, and you're right, we are very close to an answer. We've got the right man, but what we need to know now is what influenced him. This is actually going to have a very different answer to what you might have thought, and even if you read my book on this, you may not see it coming. So this guy, who the Bible calls Nimrod, is responsible for the establishment of various ancient Mesopotamian cities which over successive periods of time became the dominant regions of all Mesopotamia for thousands of years following. And I've argued in my book that the Tower of Babel story recorded in Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9 is actually incomplete and intentionally so because it looks very much like it was actually supposed to be bookended by the story of Nimrod, which occurs back in Genesis 10 verses 8 to 12. Again, the biblical author is not going to give credit to someone who's doing things by means of the small g gods, So, a bit of a switcheroo with the story and it becomes almost undetectable, but as a bit of an experiment, and I showed how this works in my book, you can just take that Tower of Babel story and stick it right in the middle of that portion of Genesis 10 and it still makes perfect sense, in fact, even more so. I won't go into all the Jewish folklore and legends that came about thousands of years after the fact, but once we have the biblical story straight in our minds, we can piece together a bit more about the life of Nimrod and what he did. There's a word we find in the Hebrew text of Genesis 10, which gives us a hint about what happened to Nimrod and how he became a giant. We're going to talk a lot more about it next week as we get into the story of Enosh. So I won't go into it in detail here because I want you to be listening next week as well. But what you need to know for now is that Nimrod was connected with some kind of practice that defiled him in a ritual sense. In the book, I go through some detail about how we determine what that actually was And we haven't actually got the time for that full exegesis here, but in a nutshell, we're talking about some kind of contact with the dead. And this is where the ancient Mesopotamian legends come into play.
0: Are we going to get into some creepy old stories?
1: I think we'll keep it pretty tame for this audience. It's a bit Scooby-Doo and a bit Evil Dead. The Bible never tells us precisely how these things work because you're not supposed to do it. So why would the Bible give you an instruction on how to do horrible, evil practices? But Recent archaeological discoveries from the city state of Ugarit have shed some light on the practice of summoning the spirits of the dead giants from before the flood to empower kings. And the practices were not restricted to the Phoenicians, but were widespread among the Amorites, which had a direct influence on the culture that Nimrod was spreading under his reign of terror. According to various Mesopotamian source documents, Mukar dug into the tomb of a dead king and encountered something terrifying which forced him to flee from the burial site. In this, he was accompanied by a person by the name of Adapa, and that's a name we've talked about recently. This name is attached in various traditions to either the first man of Mesopotamian civilization or the seventh man, depending on the tradition. And also, it's a name of one of the Apkalu. Other traditions provide a different name for this same divine entity. According to Bit Bitmazeri Tablet 3, nungal pirigaldim the apkalu of enmakar brought down ishtar from heaven into the sanctuary so we have this idea that nimrod aka enmakar had become associated with and empowered by one of the seven sages that according to mesopotamian legend returned after the great flood in order to bring the gifts of civilization from the ancient past back to humanity and for all those people who've been watching uh, ancient apocalypse on uh, netflix you all have heard uh, graham hancock talking about this let's not go into that now you might hear that and say wait a minute didn't god take those rebellious sons of god and put them in chains back in the time of the flood so how could this be happening and that sounds like a fair question until you ask yourself as i often bring up on this show what kind of chains could possibly restrain a god again i've talked about this before written about it in the book. The short answer is we're not talking about physical chains made out of some kind of metal or something. We are instead talking about the limitation of manifest glory and that is achieved by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. So that's limitation, not annihilation. The rebellious sons of God might be enduring some kind of restriction, but they are not powerless and they are not entirely devoid of agency. They can still do stuff, but they can't act in the same manner that they did back in Genesis 6. Getting back to the Tower of Babel and what was going on there, my argument is that Nimrod had got the idea that he could similarly empower thousands of people with the spirits of the dead giants in order to raise an army in rebellion against God. And that was the purpose of the Tower. From there, people under the guidance of the spirits of the Nephilim would go on to dominate the world and introduce the worship of the fallen sons of God. Now, don't get me started on stargates and dimensional portals and all that kind of sci-fi rubbish. All I'm suggesting is that this guy had discovered how to summon demons and merge them into the bodies of his followers in such a way that they became what the Bible calls the Rephaim. So that's not demon possession. It's something else. You might have heard people talk about something that is crudely referred to as the Nephilim ritual. Usually people talking about this have got their ontology all wrong. They're talking about fallen angels. They're talking about people who are just being really bad and becoming like them. And they're talking about sexual encounters with people who are possessed and all kinds of weird stuff like that. That's what happens when you try to work out mathematically how someone like Gilgamesh is said to be two-thirds divine. It doesn't work. We were talking about that in an earlier episode. I'm going to suggest that what we're looking at is probably a lot more like some kind of necromantic bloodletting ritual. Necromantic. But again, I haven't got the time to go into the details of that here. That's what the book's for.
0: Yeah, I thought we were getting close to an answer to this question, but now I feel like we've uh, kind of gotten further away.
1: Welcome to the rabbit hole. Okay, so the point of all this is to say that what Nimrod was doing was under the influence of one of the Apkalu or sages of Mesopotamian mythology. And having learned some dark magic, he found a way to cause the spirits of the dead giants from before the flood to become embodied in living people under his influence. And here's where I'm going to throw a little spanner in the works, because the question is really centered around who ultimately influenced Nimrod to do this. The various religions around the world that found their origin at battle were inspired by the worship of these rebellious sons of God that was made possible by the actions of Nimrod. But Nimrod's intent had been to unify the world against God, really. That's different to the idea of splitting the world into nations and assigning them under the authority of the fallen sons of God. Nimrod can't take the credit for that because that was God's response to the building of the tower. Ultimately, the different religions of the world came about as a human response to the judgment of God, rather than some kind of master plan initiated by Nimrod. Worship and religion in themselves are basic human institutions. They're a response to recognition of the divine, and they're intrinsic to every human.
0: Wait a minute, are you saying that it was ordinary human beings who were responsible for this?
1: I am saying that what initially brought about the situation at Babel and the rise of Nimrod was nothing more than the basic human desire to connect with the divine, which as usual was misguided and centered more around attaining divine power than giving true worship to the one who deserves it. Again, it's the whole you shall be as gods thing playing out. And that comes back to the selfish desire of humans succumbing to the temptation of the serpent and finding an avenue in the opportunity presented by Nimrod. So you see how you can't have this third fall of creation without the first two, which basically set the stage for it. And in the end, it comes back to a basic human desire to find power and security for ourselves. The autonomy to do that in our own way so who influenced nimrod was it the devil or the sons of god the answer is yes and no the devil plays a part because without the temptation provided by the serpent we wouldn't have this situation in the first place the rebellious sons of god play a part because they were the ones who created the nephilim and who empowered nimrod and because of that the nephilim eventually found their way back into the land of the living through the rephaim but again, all of this at every stage is the result of human beings deciding that they needed to appropriate divine power on their own terms. And that is why I don't buy the argument that some people make suggesting that the divine council worldview is designed to relieve human beings of responsibility for sin and the depravity of the world. Nothing could be further from the truth, because what this worldview presents in the pages of scripture is a threefold retelling of that basic premise. From Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, we're told three times that human beings are responsible for the consequences of seeking glorification outside of the way God had intended it to be. Okay, so ultimately the question of who influenced Nimrod is going to come back to human agents rather than divine enemies. And that might not have been the answer that we might have hoped to find, but it is biblically sound and true to the message of Scripture from cover to cover. So again, thanks to Rommel for sending in that question. I hope that provided some degree of satisfaction for you. And as I say, if you want more, there's always my book. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. So it's time to say goodbye. But don't forget, we will be back next week. And as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we'll be looking at something next time that will really help to tell the story of what was going on with Nimrod and indeed what was happening in the early stages of the primeval history as well. It's going to be fascinating. So make sure you stick around for that.
0: That's right. We've only got a couple of episodes left in this season before we wrap it up and take a break. Then after taking a month off, we will dive into Genesis 5, which is going to be mind-blowing. But that's all from us for now. Until next week. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the
1: Answers to Giant Questions Podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by at Grave GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Steps on the Amazon, paperback and Check out the other podcasts at you the giant giant with and Subscribe to see you
0: next time Until then, stay safe I can see a seahorse above your head
1: I like to keep one there just in case of emergency it's good I like it
0: oh that's right I knew there was something wrong with you uh, physically man I couldn't uh, remember what it was yes no, after me. your uh, EMX, uh
1: shenanigans I um couldn't find any eggnog anywhere lately, so I made my own luck night. And I got creative and threw in some custard and some milo, made a nice malt vanilla.
0: Was it uh, edible?
1: It was delightful.
0: Uh, Excellent.
1: Unfortunately, I can't make like litres and litres of it at a time, we don't keep that much milk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I had a couple of glasses of last night, and I was watching on Netflix uh, this series called Ancient Apocalypse. Oh, okay. I had some of my online buddies from the States telling me I had to watch this thing, and this guy, Graham Hancock, the constant refrain, of this guy through the whole series as well, you know, the so-called experts think that this is what's going on here. Uh, could it be something else? <laughs> <laughs> right. He's trying to push this idea, um, and and it may be a it may be a valid line of inquiry uh, as far as supporting some kind of a trend. He he seems to think he's identified a trend in all these different sites around the world, uh, evidence of a massive global cataclysm 12 and a half thousand years ago, which resulted in you know, huge flood and everything else. I mean, all of that I'd, I'd be on board with, but the whole premise is that he's looking for know ancient advanced civilizations you know, he's right obsessed with Atlantis and this kind of thing and you know he sort of I, I'd be a lot more on board with it if he had a biblical worldview so you know it was interesting because on the one hand I'm sort of thinking to myself well how do I know that anything this guy says is actually accurate am I like getting a proper representation anything he shows me in this documentary Netflix um, <laughs> Um, and the other side of it, I'm, I'm sort of like, well, s- suppose he is accurately representing information then. Um, what is he trying to do with that information? And this is what my friends did to me. Oh, you know, you've got to see this show. Uh, given that I'm not a subject matter expert, uh, I just have to say, well, you know, I don't know how much stuff you can put on anything you see on TV. So, you know. Yeah, you uh, get up to anything exciting down
0: there? Yeah, I went on this big ball thing. It's called a Zorb. Um, oh. So me and my mate Larry got in there and kind of link arms and you just lay on your back. It's like yeah. a big, you know, like a hamster ball kind of thing. Like a ball within a ball and then they just push you down this hill. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was fun until it was terrifying and then I'm glad it ended. It was only like two minutes, but there, there's water in there and it goes yeah. so up, up your nose and you have actually no control and you're going up the sides of this thing and up and up uh, and Oh, wow. And I, was I, was <laughs> realize I didn't realise there was water in them. No, they put water in them um, just to help with the friction and stuff. Otherwise, you're just going to skid and get plastic burn. and.
1: That wouldn't be um, the sheer quantity of chafing.
0: Yes, indeed. Avoid that at all costs.
1: Watching that documentary actually kind of jaded me a bit because on the trip back down to Cal Barrett, back there, mm. I saw something that... I swear, just had the exact proportions of like a big pyramid, um, just you know, on the on the coastal plains. That's what we were driving home.
0: Like a, what a rock formation or something. Well,
1: you know, a, a hill looks like a hill until it looks like a pyramid, and when when it looks like a pyramid, you go, hmm, it just doesn't look like a normal hill.
0: Yeah, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so I see this hill, looks like a pyramid. I say to myself, hmm, doesn't look like any of the hills around here. You know, there were plenty of other hills to compare it to. This one just looked like a pyramid. But, you know, we're driving past, it's in the property, you know, and, you know, it was past at hundred percent I went, hmm, that looks like it. <laughs> and, um, you know, having watched a few episodes of this ancient apocalypse by this time, I yeah, let's... Let's not turn into a crackpot and, uh, yeah. you know, start to go the theories about this. You know, it's probably just a hill after all. Uh, so
0: off I went. <laughs> good to hear it. That's fascinating, but you really need to see the big – I'll start that again. Wait a minute. Are you saying that it was ordinary human beings who were responsible for this? But you and I, we're ordinary human beings.
1: You're going to have to try that again. It came out all garbled when you started. Uh. Hey, um. Hey, incidentally, I was reading somewhere that, uh, you, you remember when we did that episode about that Stephen King movie, Maximum Overdrive? Uh, what was oh, it? yes. And the genes came to life and tried to kill the people? Um, yes. And, and it, it was all started because this comet came flying close to Earth and, and it was like green and left all this green fuzz in the sky and then everything started going crazy.
0: That's right.
1: Uh, turns out there is a green comet um, oh, really, in the sky uh, right oh. now. Interesting. Um, not sure if it's visible from here. I'm going to go out shortly and have a look. Um, mm. But apparently for the next uh, week or so, I think might be might be the next 10 days, uh, it may be visible from some parts of the world. Wow. Uh, and, yeah, you'll see a, a green comet leaving a trail across the sky wow so i didn't uh, know
0: that thank you for the heads up that is interesting trying not to read anything much into that but uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes i uh, maybe just uh just deflate your that. tires
1: yeah yeah i'll um i'll keep the uh the electric steak knife in the drawer